We may be seated. Uh, good morning. My name is Brett Kroll, and I am the curate here at Church of the Resurrection. Just started a couple weeks ago. And you might be thinking, curate, huh? Uh, I knew Resurrection had an affinity for the arts. Didn't know that they had a museum. Um, but it's not that kind of curate. Uh, so what I would like for us to do right now as we begin is think about when was the last time you received a blessing? Maybe an unexpected blessing, but sometime that somebody recently has done something for you that made you feel loved and, and blessed. The time that I, I can think of was not too long ago. Uh, I was looking for a bike in the market for a bike and there was a sale put on by a ministry that rehabbed old bikes and sold good bikes for cheap which is what I needed and when I showed up I saw Father Kevin standing there looking at the perfect bike for me now Father Kevin like me is also a tall skinny guy preaches sometimes in fact we're often confused with one another uh, just this week I was walking through the office and Karen Miller who's our executive pastor and his wife just put an arm around me and looked up and said oh and I said <laughs> Hello. <laughs> she said, I, I guess I'm adjusting to Kevin not being here. And, and I said, what does that mean for me in my role? I, what are you saying? <laughs> but I saw Kevin with his bike, and I said, that looks like the perfect bike for me. I was kind of joking, and he just said, well, it's yours. You can have it. I said, well, you were going to buy it. I was just kidding. He said, no, really, you, you take it. I know you, ride, you use your bike a lot. Take it. So I bought the bike. That's the bike you'll see me riding around. I was so blessed that day. What a, what a blessing Father Kevin was to me in that small way. But I still remember it. And now I get to tell you about it. And we say, don't we all like that tall, tall skinny guy, Father Kevin? Well, this week, uh, we are focusing on God's mission. What is God's mission to the world? And we find out that God's mission is one of blessing. God is a God of blessing. He brings good news. God's mission is to bless the world, to love, and eventually to save the world in His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, if you want to know what is God's mission in a word, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. I know that's like five words, but Jesus is God's mission to the world. He sent His Son to be a blessing. As that famous verse says, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his son. The verse right after it's also really important. For he did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. So that anyone who believes in him should not perish. God says, I, I don't desire the death of the wicked. I do not delight to curse. I delight to bless. That's the heart of our God and his mission is to bless us, to bless the world. So our task is to believe that, to believe that good news. But once we have believed the good news, then our task is to be the good news. We believe the good news, then we must become good news to those around us. We must be a blessing to those that God has put in our very lives, right around us. He says to Abram in the verse that was just read, I will bless you so that you may be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. God said that to Abram right away, right off the bat in Genesis chapter 12. So let's turn there in your bulletins or in your Bible if you have it. Chapter 12, 
Um, it's important to know what comes before chapter 12. Well, chapters 1 through 11 do. And what happens in the space of those 11 chapters? Those small, like, doesn't take up a lot of space in the big story. And yet, in those 11 chapters, God creates everything and it's great. But then Adam and Eve rebel and they have to get kicked out of the garden. Then they have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Not only homicide, it's fratricide. He kills his brother out of jealousy. And it gets worse. So bad that God has to destroy the world in a flood, saving only Noah and his family to start all over. And they start all over. But the same thing happens again. And by chapter 11, it's the Tower of Babel, and people are arrogant, and they seek to usurp and overthrow and rebel God's authority. All of that in the span of that right here, just those 11 chapters. So when we come to chapter 12, what might we expect to hear? Well, if you know the story, you know it's God's call and blessing to Abraham. But if you didn't know the story, what would you expect? And it is surprising to see that God is not coming to reprimand. He is not coming to punish or curse. He is actually coming to do the very opposite. So the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. He's going to give him an entire land. I will make of you a great nation. He's going to give him descendants. Later on, when God appears to Abram and speaks to him about what he's going to do for him, he says, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore or the dust of the earth. That's how much I'm going to bless you. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will give you a great name in all the earth so that those who hear of you will be blessed. I will make your name great that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Anyone who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, everyone, all the nations will be blessed. Here at the beginning of Genesis, God has in mind already the end. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, there's a part where it depicts the throne of God and all around the throne of God are people from every tribe, language, people and nation. And God is prophesying that already, right here. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through you, Abram. And if we count up the number of times that either the word bless, blessed, or blessing shows up in just those two verses, when God speaks to Abram, we find out it's no less than five times. And if we did not know better, if we didn't know who it was that was speaking, we could accuse God of being a health and wealth, prosperity gospel preacher. Right? If you don't know what prosperity gospel is, it's, it's when preachers say, hey, if you just believe hard enough, God's going to make your wildest dreams come true. Or if you just send me some money, God's going to bless you and that brand new car, it's yours. And we have an aversion to that. We say, ooh, bad, prosperity gospel. And yet, if we didn't know better, what is God doing? He's saying, I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Like you can't even imagine, but there's going to be a whole nation. And this whole land that you're about to walk through it's going to be yours. You don't have to pay for it. And you're not even really going to have to fight for it. I'm going to give it to you. Because when the children of Israel come in 400 years later, yes, they fight, but it's very clear when you read the narrative, it's God who is fighting for them. He gives it to them as a gift. It's blessing. It's gift all the way from the beginning, from this beginning of the story of Israel. Now, why is it not in fact, prosperity gospel, health and wealth? Well, for one, 
Abraham does not receive almost anything of what he's promised in this life. All the promises are for a future reality yet. He receives like a down payment in that, yes, his son Isaac is born, the son of the promise, through whom that nation and descendants will come. But Abraham himself never meets all of his descendants. He never sees the land to be his own. In fact, at his death, he owes like a field. He owns a field and a cave. There's prosperity for you. Hey, come check out my cave. He dies in the belief and the promise that what is yet to come is better than what he has yet seen. That's why it's not prosperity, because he doesn't experience it in this life. Also, in order to get there, if you read the rest of the Abraham story, he suffers immense trial and testing. He waits 25 years from this point until the Lord in fact, gives him his son Isaac. And even after that, you may know the story, the Lord asks, give me your son Isaac back. And he had to give him up. But if you know the story, he receives him back again. But it's through immense trial and testing. So it's not a prosperity gospel. However, I mention this because in case you are one of those who is pretty wary of the health and wealth and you're like, hey, watch out for that prosperity stuff, it's worth it to take note of the language of blessing God is all about blessing. It's everywhere, especially here at the beginning when he's first revealing himself to his people. It's blessing and it's grace. There's no reason that Abraham should have received this grace. There's no reason that the world should have received the blessing of God. But that is, in fact, what comes. So we must remember, we, we must not forget Yes, it's good to be wary of the prosperity gospel, but it is also important that we hold fast and firm to the hope that what is yet to come is greater than what we will in this life experience. To believe that and to hope in that. That is the blessing that we are called to believe. If we don't believe that good news, how can we be good news to others? What's the point of life? Honestly, if we do not believe... One of my favorite quotes is from an author, George MacDonald. At the end of his novel, he says to the main character, good is coming to thee, to thee, to thee. Yes, good is coming, and it is always coming, though few have the courage and the simplicity to believe. And it's true that if we were able to look far enough ahead, past this life, we would see only blessing. We would see only goodness. We would not see evil. And we must live in the hope of heaven. We must hold fast to that hope. And as George MacDonald said, few have the courage and the simplicity to believe that. He's talking about the uh, faith of children who do believe. My children, they, they do a much better job at believing the hope of heaven and that God is a God of blessing uh, than I do, and they demonstrated this a few months back. Uh, I was in the kitchen working at my desk, and Simon, my nine-month-old at the time, was over by the dishwasher unloading the dishwasher. Not on the shelves, but unloading the dishwasher all over the floor. I didn't mind because I was getting some stuff done, but Teresa, my three-year-old, was distressed. I said, Papa, Papa, Simon's unloading the dishwasher all over the floor. And I looked back and I said, you know, Teresa, it's just a few spoons. It's not the end of the world. 
To which her sister Caroline chimed in, Yeah, Teresa, that's not the end of the world. The end of the world is when Jesus comes back. <laughs> and I stopped and I thought about it. I said, you know what? I'm going to take this moment to ask him some questions. So I said, girls, is that a frightening thought? The world coming to an end? Everything as you know it, just suddenly stopping? And Teresa looked at me and said, no. I said, it's not? It's not at all scary to think about the end? She said, no. I said, why not? Because Jesus will be there. Like, of course. And then Caroline again chimed in and said, yeah. And when Jesus comes back to take us to Zion, we won't need our toys, but we might take a few hairbrushes and the computer. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what Jesus thinks about the computer. So it's clear from these opening lines in the story of Israel that God, his mission to the earth is to bless. And if we read carefully and with the long view, we see that indeed in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham has come. Paul is writing and he says, this is to us who live in the age in which the culmination of the ages has come, meaning the blessing that God promised Abraham is now here in Jesus Christ. And indeed, in Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth are blessed with the gift of salvation and eternal life for all who believe in him. There is no greater blessing. Talk about a blessing beyond our wildest imagination. And it's Jesus. And it's prophesied right here at the beginning in Genesis 12. Our God is a God of blessing. Abram's ears were open to hear this good news. He believed the good news, and so must we. But more than just imitating Abram in this story, which we must do, we must believe the good news, I think the more important person that we're to imitate is God himself. God, who came to Abram in all of his own, decided, I'm going to be a God of blessing. I want to bless and so we too, now that we have believed the good news, now we must be the good news. We must be that blessing to the people in the life that God has given us to live. Now once we start talking about our mission, what is our mission to the world, it can very quickly become overwhelming. Especially in a globalized world when we imagine, man, you know, I could be connected in some kind of way to pretty much anybody, anywhere. And we asked the question, somewhat like the scribe asked of Jesus thousands of years ago, who is my neighbor? In a globalized world, who is my neighbor? Because we know the scriptures say, this is your mission, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love those around you. And they said, well, who is my neighbor? And to answer that, Jesus told a parable about the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, a man was beaten and left on the side of the road, and he was passed by by a priest and a Levite. And finally, a Samaritan, an unlikely hero for the Jews, stopped. He saw the man was in need, and he took care of his wounds. He brought him to an inn, paid for his stay. He blessed that man. And the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is for Jesus to tell the crowd, do you want to know who your neighbor is? It's the person right in front of you. And I do believe that today in a globalized world, that truth is more true than ever. And we need that truth. It's more pertinent than ever. When you could be connected 
to anybody in the world at any time and, and you could be connected through social media out your ears, yet God is calling you to love the person right in front of you. Who is your neighbor? Well, it's your neighbor. The person right in front of you. What's neat is right now, Pastor Matt Woodley is across the world in Nigeria. Last spring, we uh, sacrificed and and gave over $130,000 to bless the work in Joss, Nigeria. And so we have that mission to the nations. But even that mission, there's a connection there. Bishop Stewart is good friends with Bishop Ben Kawashi. And in that sense, they are neighbors. And because of that, we too are neighbors. God is always asking us to love the people right around us. Sometimes it's tempting to read a story like Abram, where God says, go, leave your country, do something amazing. Or we we read in in the Gospels, Jesus tells the disciples also, go, go into all the towns, take nothing with you, just preach, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. Or at the end, he says, go into all the world, go, I'm sending you out. It can be easy to think, well, that's not for me. Even here, we can hear people talk about church plants being sent out and think, well, that's not for me. Well, there's a go for every single one of us. And it is to go, to be sent in the life that God has already given you to live. To go in the life that God has already given you to live with the people that are right around you, your neighbors, which means your co-workers, your spouse and your children or your parents or your siblings, your friends, and yes, your actual neighbors, like the people that live on your block. I think sometimes we overlook that fact. Those are our neighbors. Get to know them. Bless them. Be a blessing. Those are the people that God wants you to be a blessing to. To be sent in the life that he has already given you to live. One person at a time. This sort of combats what I call the Eleanor Rigby syndrome. The, ah, look at all the lonely people. How can I do anything against the great masses of loneliness? I remember when I was in high school driving home from a trumpet lesson. I was driving up the street to my house and I saw a man with a severe limp walking down the street. I drove past and then my conscience said, go back, offer him a ride. So I turned around. I said, would he like a ride? He said, yes. And he put his stuff in my trunk. We folded up his cart, put that in the, in the trunk, and I drove him about a mile, mile and a half to his apartment. It turns out that he had been in an accident about 10 years prior to this that severely crippled the right side of his body. Before that, he'd been like a foosball champion in the state or something like that. It's from him I learned that the secret to foosball, always keep the left hand on the goalie. Don't try to move both hands. Your, your right hand can move fast enough between the other... Not important, okay. <laughs> he and I played foosball, and it was clear as we chatted that he was very lonely, and that he really appreciated me being there. I went back a couple times, maybe once or twice, to visit him. Once I even brought my friends when we were in the neighborhood. And I started to build a friendship with this man. But after a while, I just stopped. I was paralyzed because I'd walk into that apartment building, which was specifically designed for disabled folks. And I said, he's just one man living in this apartment. And there's like 20 other apartments all around with people who are probably just as lonely as he is. And this is just one apartment building in my small town. And I felt overwhelmed. And I just stopped. Well, God is not asking you 
to save the world and to love the world. That job is taken. Okay? Jesus. And through the church, Jesus is accomplishing that mission all of us together. You as an individual and we as a church of resurrection, we are here with lives around us, with neighbors that we are called to love. We're called to love the person right in front of us. What if, instead of being paralyzed, I decided, you know what? Once a month, after my trumpet lesson, since I had a little bit of time at that time of day, I would stop by, like I did those few times, and play foosball and just chat with this guy, even for a half an hour. What if I had done that? I couldn't make that decision because I knew that wouldn't save his life. That's what I thought I had to do. Now I know differently. No. Maybe God was asking me to just love him, be kind, be a friend. Mother Teresa said that the poverty of the West is loneliness. It's loneliness. One person at a time. The person right in front of us. Julie and I learned this lesson at another time, and this this time the story turned out more positively. A few years ago, we were, uh, I guess you could say, tenants at Hotel Rush, the hospital down in the city. Uh, we were there for two months because our pregnancy with the girls was a high-risk pregnancy. So Julie ended up staying in the hospital for two months, and I would go visit her quite often. And we got to know the nurses and the doctors and all the staff on the floor. And they were all very, very friendly. But there were two serving the cleaning lady and, and the food lady that weren't quite as friendly at first. And it had been like a week or two, and the food lady was in the room and doing her thing, doing her duty, and we just kind of were trying to strike up a conversation, would ask her questions and get kind of one-syllable answers. And then finally, uh, it was either Julie or I, we just asked her, what was her name? Because her lanyard was always tucked in her shirt. That's it, simple question. What is your name? I felt kind of embarrassed because it had been like a week or two. And you know how it is like when you think, am I past that threshold and I can still ask somebody's name? I'll just go for it. What's your name? Oh my goodness, the change that overcame this woman. Now she was telling me, well, my name's Charlotte. I've got these children. She was like in her mid-50s. She said, they're having birthday parties. I've got grandchildren. She's telling us all about her life. And every day when she would bring the food, she would stay five or ten minutes and just linger and chat. Same thing with the cleaning lady. At the end, when the girls were finally born, these two women came in and they handed us two little stuffed animals. And I said, Charlotte, you can't be buying stuffed animals for every patient that you see. I mean, that's like dozens of patients every month. And she said, well, we don't. And half out of curiosity and half out of conceit, I said, well, what sets us apart? Why, why did you give us something? And she said, because you treated us like people. You asked our name. You asked us our names. I said, that was it. That's all it took? And that flipped the switch. And all of a sudden, we had friendship. Julie and I walked away from that amazed at a couple things. One, how easy it is to be a blessing. We didn't have to go from the Ur of Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. That would have been very hard to do. Okay? The Iraq War was still happening. We just had to love the people that God had given us to love who were right in front of us. And it was something very simple to ask a name and to be kind, to be friendly. Whenever we get overwhelmed by the mission that's out there, just remember, all we have to do is love the person right in front of us, which could mean a screaming, whining child 
And if you decide, you know what, I'm going to love my kid today for the love of the Lord, even though they don't deserve it, and right now they're sinning against me because they're disobedient and it makes me angry and I'm frustrated, yet I'm, I'm going to do that. Or our coworkers, or our neighbors, going on walks, saying hello to people and asking their name. Sounds almost like we're in kindergarten, but I'm telling you, this stuff has an impact. And what would it be like if we as a church started to warm up in our desire to be a blessing? And I want to tell you something. Uh, That begins right here. That begins with the people here in the pews, those next to us, those in this particular fellowship. Because you cannot love a starving orphan halfway across the world if you don't love the brother or sister sitting right next to you in the pew. I'm sorry. You may think that you can, but what you love is just an idea of a person. If you can't love the real person right next to you who is a challenge to love, then that's not real love to love somebody halfway across the world. And what if we began to warm our hearts and to say, what would it look like for us to love one another? Paul says to the Galatians, take whatever opportunity you can get to do good, to serve, to bless one another. Anyone, especially the household of faith. So he puts a premium on fellow believers, brothers and sisters. He says, love them first. Not to exclude those outside, but because if we don't love our own, who are we? And our best evangelistic efforts, what good would it do? What are we inviting them into? If we do not love one another, if there is not here something different happening in our midst, that requires humility. That requires forgiving people. That requires letting go of bitterness. That requires letting go of the comparison game, which only leads to, I feel envy and jealousy. I feel not good enough. Or, I'm better than that person. I look down on them. We do that here in this church. Happens anytime you get more than three people together in a room. If we let go of these things, decide to serve one another humbly in love, to love each other here, that's when we're going to start making a difference. That's when people are going to notice that's something I want to be a part of. This was Jesus' strategy for evangelism, by the way. He said in John 13, 34, if you love as I love, if you love one another in the same way that I have loved you, then the world will know who you are and who you belong to. They will know that you are my disciples. That will be your greatest witness if you love one another. So yes, let's love the person who's right in front of us. Let's start right here at Church of the Resurrection. Let's start right in our families. Let's be humbled because what's at stake? What happens if we don't do this? Well, I don't need to tell you that the world outside is growing more and more convinced that God is not a God of blessing. He's a God who delights to curse if he's even there at all, and he lives far away on the moon or something. That's what the world around us believes. Furthermore, they believe that Christians are also not on their side, that Christians are not for us kind of people. They're not people out to bless. They're people out to hate. That language is only going to get stronger and stronger and stronger as time goes on. And how wonderful if you and I, like the Samaritan, the unlikely hero, those least likely to demonstrate acts of love and kindness are the ones loving in radical ways, forgiving even our enemies. Wow, what if we did that? What's at stake if we don't? 
we have nothing to offer that the world doesn't already have. And we do not image then, we do not symbolize, and we do not proclaim in our lives and our deeds our God who is a blessing, who said, I want to bless you that you may be a blessing so that others will be blessed and know that I am a God of blessing. That's the cycle. That's what he wants. So as we come to a close, what I want to do is give us, okay, in all the ways that we could bless one another, we've, we've talked a lot about you know, reaching out in friendship or serving someone in some way. Or, I want to give us one thing that's very specific, it's very concrete, so that it's doable and we can all attempt to do this one thing together. Here is the way that I think we could be a blessing to the people right around us in the lives given to us this week. I want to call us to pray for someone this week. And I don't mean in your prayer closet at home interceding for somebody. I mean you're chatting with somebody and you just feel that this might be a right opportunity and you say, hey, can I pray about that? Can I, can I pray for you right now? Now, if you're starting to get nervous, don't worry. You can warm up on each other. Seriously. Like, pray for a believer. Pray for a brother or sister. Like, how often are we sitting in rooms, chatting, hanging out, and we miss opportunities to say, well, well hey, can I pray for you right now? Or can we just pray for you quick right now and, and bring down the blessing of God to you now in this moment? What power is availed to us in prayer if we would but exercise it? So I call us this week to pray for someone in person. And here's the thing. The more we do that for each other, for, for brothers and sisters, the easier it will be then someday when you are talking with a coworker or a neighbor and they're sharing something difficult from their life and you say, well, you know what? I, I believe that, that Jesus can heal that or, or Jesus is a blessing and that he wants to bless you even in this trial. Can I pray for you right now? It won't be so strange. A couple months ago, I had an opportunity to do that, the place I used to work. I was heading out, and uh, there's a man there. Uh, I'll call him James, because that's his name. So James lived there in the building, in the basement. Uh, he was somewhat homeless, and he would be asked by the landowners to just kind of do some, like, fix-up stuff around the building to kind of compensate for him staying in the basement. So I knew James. I'd see him going in and out every day, and one day he had this massive bandage around his finger. I said, James, what happened? He said, I cut off like the tip of my finger. I said, that's terrible. He said, I know. And we got to chatting and I told him, I said, well, you know, James, I believe Jesus can heal that. Can I pray for you? And he said, yeah. Side note, anytime I've ever asked to pray for somebody, which hasn't been like a ton, I don't want to give you the wrong impression, but anytime I've asked others too who do this, like just pray and offer to pray, rarely, Rarely, if ever, ever do people say, no, I don't want your prayers. It's something people are really receptive to, if you don't know that already. So I asked him, he said, sure, and I just put my hand on his shoulder, and I prayed for him. And his finger stayed exactly the same. Didn't change, wasn't healed, still in that bandage. Probably to this day, he's got like the top half of his finger missing. But you know what he said after that, when I stopped praying for him? He said, wow, that felt good. I can't remember the last time I felt loved like that. 
And he just went on for about another minute about how good that felt and how amazing that was. All I did was just pray a blessing on him, prayed for healing that didn't even happen in that moment. Do you want to be a blessing this week? Pray for someone. What would that look like if if every one of us started doing that more regularly? I do believe that God is able and that it's very possible that we could eventually start hearing about fingers that were miraculously restored, people who were healed, conversions happening. I believe that could start happening. Just remember that you have been blessed by God to be a blessing. And this week, keep your eyes open. Who might you be able to pray for? Let me pray for us right now. God, you are good. You give us blessing upon blessing. I first ask that you would open our hearts and open our eyes to see that. Forgive us when we are ungrateful. Show us how much you love us, that we may believe this good news, that you are a good God who blesses us. Set our hearts free to bless others, to be so filled with your love that we are free to love others. And I pray that you'd make Church of the Resurrection a place where we love one another, where it would be said of us, they know how to love one another and they know how to pray for each other. Send us on mission this week to pray for each other. Father, I ask this for the glory of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, in whom is the power to accomplish this mission. Amen.